The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. It sure is good to be with all of you. Thank you so much for being here. It's my favorite part of the week to worship the Lord with you. Uh, so what do you think of that text? Easy, right? Jesus says, ten virgins, five were foolish and didn't bring their oil and couldn't go into the wedding. You got it? Easy, right? Everybody understand? <laughs> you guys are better at it than I am. I didn't. Really? What does this mean? We are in Matthew 25, the last few days of Jesus' life. And I think for this morning, we have a lot of explaining to do. Explaining. So here's a map for the morning. I think we need to explain the context of the gospel. So in other words, Jesus just told us a parable, right? It's a, it's a metaphor. It's using symbolism to make a point about what it's like, what life is like, what, what, what the spiritual world is like. So when we say the context, what, what is it that sets, sets this parable up? What is it that's brought us here to where this parable is needed or to where it makes sense? We've got to explain that, right? We've got to try to get our, head, our heads in that. Second, this parable is based on a Jewish wedding. And their weddings are a little different than ours. <laughs> okay? And so we've got to try to understand what on earth is going on with this wedding. So we've got to understand the context of the book. We've got to understand the historical context of the wedding. Then I think we can start to understand the parable and what Jesus is saying. And when we get to that point, well, we'll be ready to apply it to our lives. And all I can say right here is, it's really, really important. This is really important to Jesus. It's a very serious thing. So will you pray with me now? I want to pray for us. I want to pray that God will give us the understanding that we need, that he'd help us to really see and get what he's saying, and then that we'd receive it, that we'd believe it, that we'd trust in it, that we'll be ready. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love to communicate yourself to us. You're, the best communication is you sent your son, fully God, took on flesh, to come, and reveal your, to, to come and reveal you to us. Lord, thank you for sending us the best possible communication, your son. And we thank you that we know about your son and what he said and what he taught and what he's done, what he will do through your word. So help us, Lord, as we hear your word. Speak to us, Lord, and speak to us as a group. Speak to us as individuals. We're here for a reason. You brought us here. I pray that each one of us would say, God, speak to me right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now the context. What's going on to set this parable up? Why is it needed? Why is it here? Well, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And he has done some radical things these last few days in his life. He entered the temple with just mobs of people following, saying, you're the Christ. And to them, Christ, Messiah meant he's the promised divine king. And so he's going to come, and he's going to judge all of God's enemies, to them especially the Romans. They were the, under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So he's going to come, he's going to judge God's enemies. He's also going to judge the hypocritical leaders of the day. How many of you don't like hypocritical religious leaders? I'm surprised you still come here. <laughs> 
He's judging them. And then they're hoping he'll change the age, really, change the age. Big words. If you read the Old Testament prophets, age is like big epochs of history. And when the Messiah comes, they believed he'd change the age right now. This age is full of rebellion against God. It's full of ugliness. It's full of wickedness. That's not hard to believe, is it? And when the Messiah comes, they thought, he'll change the age. And so he'll judge evil, and he'll bring an age of righteousness and of peace and of happiness. It'll be the way it's supposed to be. We'll be blissful. We'll be joyful in God. And we'll know God explicitly. He'll be revealed. That's what they were waiting for. And so they thought Jesus, you know, Jesus is talking like this is coming soon. And his disciples thought of this as one moment. They said, we saw this last week, Jesus, when are you going to judge the temple like you said? And when are you going to reveal yourself to everybody and change the age? And they're thinking, it's pretty obvious, our schedules are open for next weekend. It's Passover. Do it next weekend. And so in context here, Jesus is talking about his revealing, his return. To the disciples, they thought it was one thing and they thought it was coming soon. Jesus says, well, it's more like two things. And the second part, my revealing when I come, it's going to be a while. There's going to be a delay. It's going to take a long time. And that delay, that's going to be tough. It's going to be tough times, not only in what's going on during the delay, but it's just going to be tough in the waiting so long are you really coming? And so he gave all these lessons, we saw this last week, on being ready, on being prepared. He's going to come back. Will you be ready? Now this, I think, is an idea in life where we need to use our imaginations. Have you ever imagined what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back? What's it going to be like? It's going to be amazing. I, I'll be honest with you, Part when I imagine this, Part of my, my feeling sort of is fear. Um, because of the decisiveness of it. My life as I've lived it up till now, it's over. It's done. And now it's time to answer for it. And at this point, it's all in his hands as the judge and the king. It's done. And I am in his hands. Am I ready? How I lived my life, does that have me ready? More importantly, how I responded to him and what he's done, am I ready? Because when it comes, it'll be decisive. If you will, I think it'll help. Look at Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. Just a piece of what we saw last week. It sets up this parable. 24, 36 to 44. Look what Jesus said about his return. Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore, therefore what? Stay awake. You don't know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be what? Ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. He's going to be delayed, but he's going to come. Two things about it. Number one, it's going to be surprising. 
It's going to be surprising. The angels aren't going to fly one of those airplanes through the sky and write smoke messages. You got 30 days, y'all. You're not going to get that. In fact, he's going to come like a thief. One thing about a thief, they don't call ahead, right? Are you free on Friday? I was going to come steal your stuff. Just want to make sure you wouldn't be there. They don't call ahead. It's a surprise. That's the point. Jesus will come and it will be a surprise. Second thing, it'll be decisive. Decisive. It's over. One left, one taken. Normal life will still be happening. You'll be at work with your friend. And we saw last week Jesus said that he's coming for his people. It's this word elect. These people he knows, he loves, he's called, he's chosen, he's saved. They trust in him. He's coming for us. And he's going to take us. And one's taken and one's left. It's decisive. It's done. It's over. Oh, the joy. He's coming. He's changing the age. Oh, the sorrow. Some people won't be ready. Are you ready? That's what this is all about. Jesus wants you to be ready. It's a little heavy because it's a warning, but it's a loving warning, isn't it? When you, love pe- when you love people, what do you do? They're kids. They're playing near the street. What do you tell them? And if you run into the street, you're in trouble. Number one, you're in trouble with me because you make me scared when you run in the street. <laughs> I don't want you to get hurt, right? I love you. That's why you can't run in the street. I don't want you to get hurt. Second, if you run in the street and a car's coming, I don't even want to talk about that. It's a loving warning. What is Jesus doing for you here right now? It's a loving warning. Be ready. Are you ready? That's what this parable is about. You see it in verse 13 of our text. Jesus says, watch, therefore, you don't know the day or the hour. It's going to be a surprise. It's going to be decisive. Make sure you're ready. Okay, Jesus is coming back. You better be ready. What do Ten virgins with torches have to do with it. You're like, I don't know. That's why you're here, okay, (laughs) right? Well, let's explain the wedding. Jewish weddings are different than ours. Supposedly, and you guys, I didn't know this before I was studying it, okay? Full disclosure. Commentators say the Jewish wedding had four episodes to it. Number one, it's old school. The parents would arrange the wedding, okay? So you, you, might get to, you might get to have a say. You might not have as much of a say. Dads and moms will talk, especially dads. They'll write it up. This is the way we're going to go. Okay, so they make the arrangement. That's part one. Number two, then there's a betrothal ceremony. So that's what you and I think of as a wedding ceremony. They would get together. They'd give vows. They'd read some things. They'd pray. It's a ceremony. Okay, you're married. But here's the thing that's weird for us. They don't live together after that. Even though they're betrothed and they're officially married, they still live apart. They live with their own families for is up to even like a year. And here's what's going on. The groom has this time, this year to prepare. So he's building a house or he's working the field. He's building up his wealth. Why? So that he can provide for his lady when it's time. Now, I'm not down with the whole arranging thing, I don't think. Although, some of you, if you want to talk later. But maybe we have something to learn about this part. Something like, you don't get to touch me until you've shown you'll, pro- you'll provide for me? I don't know, I kind of like it. What do you think? He has to provide, he has to show he can do it, he's responsible, he's really going to do it. But then finally would be the, the fourth part. So you've got the parents arranging it, the betrothal ceremony, a time of preparation, then the real thing. The parade. So at the right time, and people would know when it was come, in the evening, there would be this parade starting at the groom's house. 
And they get all these torches, this, this group of people, everybody involved, and they do a parade through the village, and it's a highlight for the village. Everybody's involved. Everybody they know, all the family and friends. It's a highlight for the village, and they have this parade through the streets, and they go to the bride's house, and they get her, and she's there with her friends. And then they have a parade back to the groom's house. And they all lock themselves in the groom's house when they get there, and they party for as, up to like a, as, as long as like a week. And then finally, at the end of the week, the best man says, all right, enough's enough. And he goes and grabs the bride's hand, and he puts it in the groom's hand, and he kicks everybody out and says, leave them be, okay? And then they're ready. Wow. Can't you sense the buildup there? It's, it's kind of cool when you think about it. The buildup and the tension, and then finally, all this has come together. And these people have come together. And we're celebrating their marriage. But that's in the brains of the people Jesus is talking to when he tells this parable. That's their expectation on the world. That's how it works for them. And so now we think, okay, if we know this four-part kind of process for their wedding, who are these virgins? Well, listen, in this passage, virgin just means young lady. It just means somebody that's not married yet. Young lady, okay? And these are probably friends or attendants of the bride. And so they're waiting at the bride's house for what? They're waiting for this parade to come from the groom's house. They're waiting. And they've brought with them torches. So it's not the little light, probably, that you'd have in your living room. It's on a big stick, and there was a, a wire mesh thing with a cloth in it. And so you dip the cloth in the oil, supposedly. You stick that thing up there, you'd light your torch. That's part of your job with the parade. Here's what's funny about it. D.A. Carson, he's a commentator, he said, everybody in the party had a torch, and your, par- and your torch was kind of like your identity card. If you didn't have a torch, you were seen as a party crasher or a thief. We don't, you're, you're not invited to this party. That's important. Because a torch was partly an identity card. Second, it was part of the job. This is 2,000 years ago. At night, it gets dark. Okay, we live in Southern California. It never really gets dark, right? The lights, the lights bounce off the clouds. You can always go outside, don't even need a light there. It's dark. And so everybody in the parade, they have this torch. It looks pretty, it looks cool, and you can also see things. <laughs> so it's this identity stick. It's part of their job, the lights. Now, okay, Jesus is coming back, be ready. Jewish wedding, four parts, bridesmaids with their torches. Now we're ready, finally, to think of the parable, okay? Let's walk through the parable, see if we can understand it. Look at verse 1, chapter 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. Jesus thinks he's king, promised king. This is how it's going to work in my reign sometimes, in some way. It'll be like, verse 1, be like what? Ten virgins who took their lamps, there's those big torches, and went to meet the bridegroom. So you've got ten ladies And in general, they look the same, right? They look the same. They're dressed the same. They all brought their torches. They're all waiting for the parade. They're all waiting for the groom. There they are together. They look the same. But in one very important respect, they're different. Verse 2, five of them were what? Foolish. And the other five were wise. It's funny to me that the Greek word behind what we're reading in English, foolish, is moros. You heard that one before? You moron. That's where we get it, moron. 
Um, it's not accidentally not smart. It's not like that. It's a willful, stupid, foolish. Like, you know better. Why are you doing this? It's, it's rebellious. It's self-centered. It's, it's so, it's stupid rebellious where you're like, you know better. What are you doing? Five of them were like that, and five of them were wise. They were uh, thoughtful. They're paying attention to what's most important. They're awake. Five are wise, five are foolish. Now, if you're you're hearing a parable, which one do you want to be? Don't be an idiot, Jesus is saying. (laughs) Don't be an idiot. In this story, what made them wise or foolish? Verse 3, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no, what? Oil. And again, how important is oil to this party? This is, your, this is your identity card. This is your job. Hey, I'm going to go to an all-night parade celebration in the dark, and I don't need to bring any oil. I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they weren't thinking. The parable doesn't really say. Maybe they're re- thinking they could rely on other people, weren't taking responsibility for themselves. They didn't bring any oil. So then, second part of the parable, first you've got these ladies, five are foolish, five are wise. Then there's a delay. Look at verse five. The bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. So I don't know when it gets dark there. It got dark and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, you're waiting. I'm taking a nap. So they all slept. Does the text blame anyone for sleeping? No, it's not a problem. The wise slept too, right? The wise slept too. This took longer than we thought. They're all sleeping. Part two, the delay. Part three, there's a revealing. Verse six, at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. The party started. Let's go. Come out to meet him. Time to go. Verse seven, all the virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. That means they're getting it lit. Light them up. Party's on. And then the foolish said to the wise, oh, can I have some oil? And you can imagine the wise being like, are you kidding me? We've been sleeping here all night long, and now you're thinking you need some oil? Why did you wait until now? I can't give you any of mine. I need mine for my job. I can't believe you didn't bring oil. Are you serious? Go try to buy some. So they go. They need oil. They have to have it. They go get it, and as a consequence, here's part four, the parade passes them by. It goes to the bride's house. They can't join on the way to the groom's house. They don't have their oil. So when, when they finally get to the groom's house, everybody's already in there for the party. They weren't part. They didn't have their torches. They didn't have their lamps. The door's shut, and the groom says, I don't know you. You're not invited. And that's when Jesus says, Watch, therefore, you don't know the, the day nor the hour. Okay, so you guys tracking? You ready? We heard the parable. Now we got to plug it in. We got to plug it in. A parable is a metaphor, right? It's a, it's a symbol teaching you an important truth. So how do we plug it in? Well, let's start easy. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. Okay, who's the groom whose return is delayed? Jesus, right? Okay, that makes sense. Has his return been delayed? Well, what is it, 2015? Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, Is he going to come? We all are sleeping. Sleeping here kind of means you can't just sit on the roof and be like, I'm ready, Jesus. I'm ready, Jesus. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to eat. You're going to have 
You're going to have to take care of your family. You're going to have to do stuff. You're going to have to live normal life as you wait. Okay? Everybody does it. But he's the groom. He's the king. He promises he's come. And I think it's cool that, remember, Jesus is going to change the age when he comes. What is it going to be like in this parable? It's a wedding party. The Bible says this lots of places. It's a wedding party. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be joyful. That's the party. Man, you want to get into that party, right? You want to be there when he comes back. So the groom was delayed. That's Jesus. All right, who are the young ladies then? Who are these people? Well, they're all dressed up. They've all brought their torches. They all are waiting for the groom to come. Who are these people? It's professed Christians. It's those who claim to be Christians. It's us. And this is where it gets a little scary. Jesus warns of this all the time. What is he saying? Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And he's basically saying, you need to have a look at yourself. You need to have a look. Many who profess Christians will be revealed as frauds and they'll be shut out. When Jesus comes back, they won't be ready. They won't be ready. So this is, this is for church people. We look kind of the same. We say kind of the same stuff. We go to sign of the same places. Some of us get shut out. Wow. You can see why it's kind of serious, can't you? Man, back to imagining the return of Jesus. Imagine it. Imagine him saying, I don't know you. Don't want to be that guy. So it all comes down to this question, doesn't it? The groom who's delayed, that's Jesus in his return. The young ladies waiting, that's the professed Christians. And it all comes down to this question. What's the essential thing they have to have to get in, in, this, in the parable, in the story? They have to have the oil. They have to have the oil. Which is why I'm going to, uh, after the service, I have some bottles of oil to sell you. Salvation oil. You know, somebody somewhere tried that, right? <laughs> That's just to show it's, is it oil or is this symbolic for something? It's symbolic, okay? It's not oil. You don't really have to have your, your Jesus torch. I can imagine someone starting a hor- horrid business. Jesus torches and Jesus oil. No. It's symbolic, okay? But symbolic for What? That's the kicker. What is this essential thing you've got to have to get in? What could it be that makes you ready? I think we can pick up on five aspects that this thing has to have. Are you picking up on it? Number one, it seems to identify you in context. It identifies you. You have to be the torch to show that you're part of the the team. It identifies you. What could that be? Number two, it seems to be part of your participation You light that thing up, and it gives light. That's part of your job. You're waving it. You're part of the parade. It's an identity. It's a participation. It's a life. Number three, strange. You can't borrow it. Stands out so much in the Gospels. Jesus says in Luke, if somebody asks you for your coat, what should you do? Give it to them. If your enemy's like, hey, will you walk with me a while? Jesus is like, tell them you walk too ridiculous generosity. Nobody's generous like Jesus tells us to be generous. And then here we have one thing where when somebody asks you for it, you're like, sorry, I can't give it to you. You have to have your own. You can't borrow it. 
Strange. It identifies you. It's your participation. You can't borrow it. Four, it seems to be relational. Relational. What does the groom say to the ladies with no oil? I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. Who are you? It's relational. Five, we've seen it. It's essential. What could it be that identifies you? It's your participation. Can't borrow it. It's relational and it's essential. Well, I'm going to give you my theory and then I'm going to try to prove it. Okay? Give you my theory and then I'm going to try to prove it. I want to take you to Matthew 8 just for a moment. Hopefully we'll have that up there just in summary. Matthew 8. I like it. I like this as a proof because it's in Matthew. And what are we studying? Matthew. Get your proof from the same book. There's this amazing story. Jesus goes to Capernaum. It's a major town. And a centurion comes to him. Now, again, put your head in the biblical world. How does a religious Jew feel about a Roman centurion? How would you feel if the general of Al-Qaeda came over? Okay? Kind of like that. That's how you feel. You don't like him. Why? He's evil. He's evil. But how would you respond if you wanted to know Jesus? Interesting question. Centurion come forward, appeals to Jesus. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus says, I'll come heal him. The centurion replies, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Wow, what's his attitude towards Jesus? Humility. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. And he says to Jesus, just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he what? Marveled. Wow. He's shocked. He's amazed. He marvels. And then he says to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith. And then Jesus continues by saying, hey, in the party that's coming later, he's going to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with me in the kingdom. He's in the party. That seems to resonate with our parable. He's in the party. What was it that changed the centurion from evil hated, ugly, go burn in hell, you piece of, that kind of a guy. What changed him to? Amazing. Come to my party with my people. What was it? Jesus marveled at his faith. And you see the picture of the man's faith. He's humble towards Jesus. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. He sees Jesus for how great he is. Just save me, help me. He has a humble attitude towards Jesus. It's a, it's a real faith. I know some of who you are, his faith is saying, and you're awesome, and I need you. Faith, and Jesus says, awesome. I marvel. Faith changes man's identity. Do you see it? It changed his identity. What is it that needs to burn in, in the torch of your life? Okay, that's the parable. It's faith. Faith changes your identity. The Apostle Paul says that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, even, even if you want to use Jesus' words, it's as small as a mustard seed, it's teeny, just a little bit. If you trust in Jesus, you see him for who he is, and you say, I need you, God does something amazing for you. He unites you to Jesus. 
And so everything his, Jesus has done belongs to you. Jesus' righteousness is given to you. What Jesus did on the cross, taking all our sins, that's applied to you. Jesus' resurrection is given to you. You have a new identity in Christ by grace, love we don't deserve, through faith. You get it for free. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to fix everything. You can't quit trying. You're not good enough. Look to Jesus. If you put your faith in him, that changes your identity to where now you are called Instead of an enemy of God, the daughter of God, a son of God, adopted. Faith, faith changes, determines your identity. Number two, faith enables your living. That torch was part of the young lady's job, right? She's got to shine it. It's her participation. It's what she's doing. Faith enables your living. Look at James 2. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. So which would you rather have, guys, a poll? People who believe in Jesus, supposedly in this conversation, or people who actually live out their faith for Jesus? James says, show me your faith apart for your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19 is important. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and shudder. There is a kind of faith that's not real faith. It's what you could call mental assent or factual knowledge. There's lots of ways we could try to illustrate this. Maybe you have seen my wife's Facebook profile picture. She's never on it. And you can say, oh, I know of Marsha. Great. Okay? I know Marsha. Right? I know her. I don't just believe in her. I do, baby. <laughs> but I know her. James says, who has really good theology, according to James? Great theology. They know that God is holy. They know that he's sovereign. They know all the omnis. Omnipresent, omniscient. They're experts on superlapsarianism and other things that none of us here understand. They know their theology. What does that faith do for them? They're scared of God. They hate him. So what's got to be the difference between a demon's faith and your faith, my faith? Well, first of all, there's a humility to it, right? Like we saw in the centurion, our demons like, Jesus, please save me. No, they're like demons. Uh, They hate him, right? They hate him. So our faith is a a humble need for Jesus, but it's also, James is getting at, you can't just claim this belief with no evidence in your life that you believe. And so we see what he's saying here, a dead faith or a fake faith has no life behind it, but real faith, the kind that's in this parable, gives life. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is what? Dead. It's a dead faith if it's just stuff you know in your brains. But it's a real faith if it's trust in Jesus and repentance towards him that just flows out naturally and it's affecting your life. Look at Romans 1.16. Love this verse, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. I'm just going to join right here. I am not ashamed of this. This is the best news in the world. It's the hope of the world. This is it. Who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for us. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's powerful. It saves to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by what? Faith. When we trust in the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, and again, it, could be, it can be a mustard seed, the smallest, like, calling the Lord, I need you, I can't do this, save me. I, I need you, Jesus. And you look to him, and this faith gives you his righteousness. You're late. God says, you're righteous in my sight now. I've given you the perfection of Jesus. That life that you have, that new life, being born again, continues every day, every moment, from faith for faith, every day, all the time, the righteous shall live by faith. Every day as Christians, how do we live? Faith in the gospel, every day. And that shows itself in our deeds. It gives us new life. As the old theologian Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone. Okay, you want to be right with God? Don't try to fix it. Don't try to do it. Trust Jesus. That saves you. But then Luther says, but saving faith is never alone. If you've trusted in him really, that his love for you, his grace for you, his Holy Spirit is in you, that can't help but change you. It's going to change how you live. So back to our parable. We need something that gives us an, an identity. The oil and the torch did that. What does faith do? New identity in Christ. We need something that gives us life, participation. We're waving that thing. We're part of the parade. We're in. What does faith do? It enables the life, the Christian life, every day. Okay, what about the borrowed part? You can strengthen my faith, and you do. You can strengthen it. You can lead me to opportunities to have faith. Hopefully I do that for you. But in the end, imagine it. Imagine Jesus coming back right now. And some of us, one of us, I don't know, he's back and we think, I never trusted him. I gave it arm's length, I knew some facts, I liked the idea, I wore the right clothes, I, I, I said some of the phrases, but I never trusted him. I never repented to him. I never embraced him as mine. And you look at me or you look at someone, what if you, what if you looked at me, he's here and you said, can I have some of your faith? And I'd be like, I wish, I wish I could give you my faith at that point. But it's not something I can give. It's not something you can borrow. Because it belongs to you and your mind and your heart. It's your responsibility. Only you can trust your life to Jesus. That's why we never fight religious wars as Christians. They don't do anything. It doesn't work. If you have a gun and you go to somebody's head, believe in Christ. Okay. They didn't believe in Christ. They just didn't want to get shot. It doesn't work. That's why the way we do our work, Paul says, the apostle says, faith comes from hearing. The way faith grows is we tell people about Jesus from his word. And then it's on you. It's on you what you do with it. It's up to you what you do with it. Now, we need one another's help, of course. Can't be a Christian by ourselves. We can't. If you need a church, man, we, we would love to have you. Can't be a Christian by yourself. We need help. We strengthen our faith. Our faith grows as we meet together. But in the end, 
I can't make you have faith. You can't make me have faith. It's yours. Oh, and you see this parable come to life here where the young ladies say, can I have some of your oil? And they say, I can't give it to you because I have to use it. In the same way, we can't borrow faith. Look, have you put, Jesus is saying, be ready. Have you trusted in me really? Faith can't be borrowed. Number four, faith is relational, isn't it? It's relational. I was thinking of the words from John 10, 14. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Love this. And then Jesus says, I know, what does Jesus know? I know, say it with me, I know my own. I know him. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus says, one thing's for sure about those he saves, he knows them. I love this. He says he knows them really well. I know them like I know the Father. He knows you. Just grip, just hold on to that for a moment. We get this idea of this big world and God loves the world and God loves the church and we fall through the cracks in there somehow, don't we? He doesn't know me. Why would he want to know me? But Jesus is saying, oh, you don't get it. I know you really well and I laid my life down for you. I love you. I laid my life down for you. That stirs up faith, doesn't it? His love. That builds up, nothing builds up faith like the, the promise of his grace in the gospel. I died for you. I love you. I know you. Yeah, I want that. And he says, I know my own, and my own know me. Christianity is unique as a religion because there is a, such a strong relational aspect to it. We, we know God. This sounds funny to say, doesn't it? I know God. If I say it the wrong way, you're like, freak. <laughs> It's not like I call him on a cell phone, you know. I was actually at a sermon once where the guy goes, hold on. Yes, Lord? Okay, I'll tell him. He didn't do this with his hand. That was me. Yes, as if he was like getting Morse code from Jesus. And we were all like, that's total baloney, you know. Can we have his number too? It's not like that. I don't know him completely. He doesn't dial me up on the phone. But come on, Christians, don't you feel like you know him? Hasn't he spoken to you? Hasn't he worked in your life? Hasn't he answered prayers? Hasn't he met you in your need? Aren't you, part of what comforts me when I imagine Jesus coming back is, I think I know him. I think he's going to be like, yeah, I know you. I've been dealing with you a long time. You're kind of an idiot, but I know you. Come on, I know you. We know him. Now look at Galatians 4, 6 to 7. Now this is all, listen, if you're reading Galatians, Galatians is all about salvation by what? Faith, 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 all through Galatians. Faith. And so Paul is arguing in Galatians, you have a new identity through faith, not through works. This is right down what we're talking about. Faith, verse 6. And because, and so I'm doing my brackets, okay, I'm translating for you. Because you're children of God through faith. That's exactly what he's saying. God has spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is an experience. As Christians, we don't base our salvations on our experiences because sometimes we're like, oh, I had a great day, Jesus loves me. No, I had a bad day, Jesus hates me. No. Our faith is not based on our experiences, it's based on what Jesus did. And yet, there's an experience through the Holy Spirit. And what's this experience? That's when your heart is going, oh, Dad, I love you. I know you love me. 
to God, your Father. Father, I know you love me. I love you. Father, what is that? That's the Spirit crying out in your heart. Father. And it's part of knowing God. I know him. He's my Father. I love him. I need him. I don't always understand him. I don't always turn to him. I don't always worship him. I don't always obey him. I know him by grace, through faith. Do you know him? Do you know him? If you don't know him and you want to know him, let me tell you this. You want to know him because he wants to know you. I dare you to go ahead and pray this if you're that person. I want to know you. Let me know you. And I think all of us could say that. Let me know you more. Let me see it again. It's faith. Faith is relational. Are you seeing how faith is the essential oil in the torch? Faith determines identity. Faith enables living. Faith can't be borrowed. Faith is relational. Finally, faith is essential. It's essential. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God. Well, that makes it easy. Can you please God without faith? It's essential. So again, what is it? It's that humble trust, that looking to, that relying on Jesus. It's, the, it's that thing in the heart that says, I see you, you're great, I need you, I want you, save me. Lead me, show me. Trust, reliance, faith. Faith pleases God. If you're trusting in God, it pleases him. It pleases God. It seems too easy, doesn't it? Climb a mountain, cut yourself, say the special words, go to church every Sunday and you'll please God. No, you won't. Faith. Faith pleases God. How come? How come? Why does faith please God? Listen, if you could do this stuff to please God, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit? Oh, I did it. Look at me. I saved myself. I was good. I made the sacrifice. I paid the money. I said the words. I did it. Look, if that's how you get saved, you get the credit. Yay for you. It's not how it works. Number one, you didn't do it good enough, number one, to meet God's standard. It doesn't please him. And you're getting the credit. But faith, faith is looking at who? Who are we looking at? We're looking at Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And we're saying, I need you. And who gets all the glory in that picture? Jesus, that's why it works this way. He, the one who deserves the glory, the glory gets the glory, and what do we get? Deliverance, salvation, help, love. It's made this way on purpose. God gets glory, we get saved, satisfied. It's essential. Faith is the oil. Do you have the oil? Are you ready? If Jesus came back right now, is your faith in him? Please let it be. Please let it be in him. So it's a loving warning. Don't be the good person who gives a head nod to Jesus, but really you're trusting in yourself. Don't be that person. If we had a little interview and I was like, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Why? Don't say, well, I've always gone to church. The Pharisees always went to church. Don't say, I'm in the CRC. Two-thirds, of you, half of you don't know what that means. Don't say it. Don't say, 
I was a good person. Have you seen my neighbor Joe? He's a jerk. I'm better than him. Don't say that. Don't be the good person who gives a head nod to Jesus but relies on themselves. It's joke. It's junk. When Jesus comes, you'll be like, can I borrow somebody's faith? Trust in him. Don't be the free agent who participates in everything. But Jesus doesn't have your heart and your loyalty. Don't be that person. Don't be the church attender who says the right thing and knows some of the answers, but your heart's not trusting in Jesus. Do you see the point? Jesus is saying with all he can, be ready. And what's the way to be ready? Put your faith in him. That's the oil. Faith is enough. Faith is enough to, to save you in Jesus Christ. Trust him and receive a new identity. Trust him and live that new life. Trust him yourself, individually. Trust him and know him by the Holy Spirit. Live by faith and be ready for Jesus. Because surprisingly, one day he'll return. For some of us, that'll that'll look like death. We'll die. And we'll stand before Jesus. For some people out there, someday, (laughs) they'll get to see it. If you've put your faith in him, you'll be ready. You'll be ready. And he'll look at you. What will that be like? That glorified Jesus, he will look at you. And I think he'll smile at you. And he will say, I know you. And he will say, welcome home. Come on into the party. For all of us in this room, let's be there together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your kindness, your words to us. I pray for anyone in here who hasn't trusted in you, and I pray that you'd just be uh, pushing them to the tipping point, showing them who you are, that they would put their faith in you. And you give them a delightful assurance that all these things are true and belong to them. Lord, for those who are already Christians, myself included, grow our faith, grow my reliance on you, my enjoyment of my identity that you give me. Grow my life of faith, living in obedience because I trust in you. Grow my relationship with you, my knowledge of you. God, thank you that we don't have to do crazy stuff to save ourselves, that Jesus did it all for us in our place. We trust in him. We can't wait till we get to go to that party. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.